Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis, and each week I sit down with my battle-scarred but indomitably optimistic investment manager friend Peter Silent to chew over the latest developments in the markets and debate what they might mean for governments, investors and taxpayers. Good morning, Peter. This week I thought we should have a discussion about a topic we've touched on uh, in the past but haven't really gone into in great depth, which is this very uh, topical subject of growth and value investing. What do we mean by that? Why is that significant? And uh, why is one of those two styles of what we call styles of investment uh, been doing very well compared to the other? Uh, The background to that is that uh, growth as a style, we can talk about how you define that, uh, has been outperforming value for the last 10 years more or less consistently, apart from a couple of years. Uh, And that is a reversal of the very long-term trend that academics have identified, which is that value on the whole tends to outperform growth. I've got some numbers on that, but I thought I'd just start off by by saying, how do you think about this issue and and where do you come at it from, Peter? Good morning, Jonathan. I'm a growth investor, not a value investor. So I'm concentrating more on growth And there are, of course, various types of growth. Um, The style, or it's not even a style, the philosophy I like is called quality growth. The value style, again, and that is a style rather than a philosophy, in my opinion, there are different types of value approaches. In terms of one outperforming the other, my research has shown me that there have been two prolonged periods of value underperformance. The first from 1926 to 1941, and the second from 2007 until today. And both of these took place during technological revolutions, which caused what they call creative destruction and so-called value traps for the investors. Okay, so well, we're both very experienced, and 1926 to 41 is a period that I remember well. Uh, it was a little bit before I was born, but I do have read the history about that. So that's an interesting perspective to take a longer-term perspective. I think it does help to put this in perspective. I think one of the things, one of the reasons why this whole debate is going on at the moment is because of the way that the investment business has changed in the last uh, 20 years or so. With the ability to crunch numbers on a massive scale, which is now possible because of the uh, advances in uh, computing and telecommunications, people have been able to go back and they're going to be plowed through history and come up with all sorts of interesting numbers about what worked and what didn't work in the past. And quite a frightening statistic that I came across the other day was that um, no fewer than 78% of professional investors say or professors, that they actually adopt some form of what we call factor-based investing. In other words, they are looking at what we uh, these things that academics call factors. These are common, the things that have common characteristics of the stocks that perform well. Uh, and the most famous ones are value. There's also yield. There's also uh, uh, momentum and volatility. And the most famous one of all is size. In other words, the fact that small companies on, on the whole tend to do better than large companies over time, which is as you would expect in a well-functioning market, I think. But 78% adopt factor-based investing, which means that they are coming at investing from a slightly different approach from from you and indeed from me. 
Whereas you're looking for good companies which are going to deliver uh, good returns over time, and you're going to study those companies in depth uh, and find out why they are doing so well and that they're going to go on making profits and so on. Whereas if you come at it from a factor-style investing, you're looking at the market in aggregate and you're saying you tend to be somebody who's worried about relative performance rather than absolute performance, and you're saying, how am I doing relative to the market or all these other things that, that people can measure? Uh, and that's why you get driven into doing what we call style investing, which is trying to follow one of these particular factors or overweighting one of these particular factors. Do you think that's a positive development or not, Peter? It's a natural development. I suppose you could say it's positive, but I'm not really interested in that because what these people concentrate on are the stocks. In other words, the shares or the derivatives or whatever it is that has a price which changes all the time. And therefore, for them, the underlying businesses are less important than what these businesses are worth to the market at any given time. In other words, it's a playing field. And the playing field is getting bigger and bigger and bigger as more and more factors emerge to hang one's hat on or to play around with. I think that value investing <clears throat> covers all these various things. It means different things to different people. But it is concentrating on the difference between the price, let's say the share price, of a cyclical business at any given time compared with the value of either its assets or its earnings or a number of other metrics. What growth investors are looking for is growth. It's growth. Rather than the closing of the gap between the price of a company and its intrinsic value as calculated by the investor who holds that stock. So uh, you're absolutely right. There's two different kind of ways to think about this, I guess. I mean, when people talk about value investing, some people are still talking back to the, the days of Ben Graham, the, the so-called father of security analysis, in a time when it was possible to find companies because the markets were fairly uh, illiquid and not very... Uh, uh, and perhaps not very efficient, as we would say now, when it was possible to find companies which were trading on, you know, that they might have sort of 50 million pounds of cash and they were had a market value of 60 million or something like that. So in other words, there was, they were clearly mispriced because the, the value of the assets, whether that was cash or whether it was uh, plant and machinery or whatever it was they, that was on their balance sheet, um, was uh, uh, out, of, out of kilter. I mean, that is not what it means now, of course. Value investing now means refers to a style which is looking at things like, uh, related, but things like price to book and uh, book value and so on, which is the, the value of the company in it, according to its accounts, um, the net worth. Uh, but of course, that's a slightly different game. And these days, everybody's looking at the whole market. And a lot of those old anomalies that Ben Graham was going on about have, have disappeared. And it's very rare to find, in it's certainly in the US, UK, or European markets, it's quite rare to find stocks that are trading uh, on that basis, which are obviously dirt cheap in the old sense. Um, so now it's moved on a different game. And as you say, you're interested in, in businesses that will make profits. But why would, uh, I mean, the argument against that is that, uh, I think is that uh, people are so enamored about growth when they find it, particularly at the moment, and they're so enamored about finding companies that are growing their sales and their profits, 
that they will tend to overpay for them. In other words, the price you have to pay to buy one of these stocks uh, will get artificially too high or perhaps too high for a long-term return. What do you say to that? I agree with you. Uh, the prices, price to earnings ratio ratios of fast growing businesses are very high <clears throat> but they're only too high if the other component that gets that should be part of a pe um, ratio which is actually the balance sheet side of the equation uh, the the people who buy these fast growing companies like netflix they ignore the fact that balance sheets can be very dodgy and over indebted so I think that the P.E. ratio becomes one of the most widely used and widely misused metrics that you have there on a daily basis. That's why I differentiate between growth and quality growth. The difference is that quality growth, the quality side of a quality growth business is reflected in the balance sheet and the growth side is reflected in the income statement and then the, and the free cash flow that these businesses generate. So that's a, an entirely different cup of tea. You mentioned Benjamin Graham quite rightly, but think of this, when Benjamin Graham invented this, or came up with this notion, uh, what do you think the industrial component of the stock markets would have been compared to today? Or to put it differently, the tangible assets that these companies had at the time were much more important than the tangible assets in today's stock markets. Because today, the tangible assets have been replaced through the technological revolution that I mentioned earlier, have been replaced by intangible assets. And therefore, to keep your attention on tangible assets which are shrinking as a proportion of the whole thing and compare the value of those tangible assets with the share price, I think is yesterday's game. And it has been yesterday's game ever since the deflationary forces got bigger and bigger. Now, that might change or that might not change. We've discussed it before. We'll discuss it again. But for the moment, that to me is the reason why value investors have suffered an underperformance compared with growth investors who themselves have suffered an underperformance compared with quality growth investors who in turn have outperformed everything else. So that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, indeed, I share that philosophy. But... Uh, what is true, I think, it, what is undeniable is that if you if you look at these particular styles of investing, uh, and they are just sets of characteristics which may or may not persist over time, uh, the danger, I think, which comes out again from the academic research is that it's it's uh, sometimes can be dangerous to try and uh, allocate reasons to it, if you like, uh, which are good for all time. In other words, that what you say is obviously correct. They are companies which have a lot of intangibles on their balance sheet rather than they're not building huge factories and like Henry Ford or anything like that, but they have got lots of uh, innovation. They've got human, very bright people working for them, and it doesn't cost much to have a computer you know, network and so on. Uh, so obviously that is going to change the way that you value a company. But, I mean, there will be periods, there was a period between you know, 2000 
uh, at the end of the TMT bubble when the internet, all the early technological stocks crashed. Uh, that uh, to about 2007, when we had the, the next great financial crisis, uh, when the value as a style did outperform growth as a style. Um, your kind of companies you invest in were still making money and doing well, but they weren't performing as well as some companies which were uh, uh, didn't have the same characteristics. So there will be periods when when your uh, style of investing is going to do less well than, than others in relative terms. Is that right? It's, it would be right. Well, it is right on all counts, except that it's, ours is not a style, but a philosophy. Uh, and, and I insist on that, and I always do, because the reason why it's a philosophy rather than a style is because the companies into which those who have this philosophy invest are so-called long-duration businesses. And long-duration businesses are long-duration businesses until such a time that they stop being long-duration businesses, which is when the pinnacle of their free cash flow takes place. And they are then slowly but surely replaced as other players come into their space. But for the time being, certain businesses not only are long-duration ones, but they will stay that way for a long time. Which means, of course, that what the stock market does to their share prices during short-term periods that compose this long-duration period is relatively uninteresting and not of interest to the, to the investor who has that philosophy and therefore is used, should be taken advantage of, to buy some more, as it were. And every time that took place in the last decades, it was rewarded because then the correlation um, came back. The, the, obviously, the most interesting example of that was just before the stock market crash of 1974, when you had the Nifty 50 period, which you remember very well, where there were price earnings ratios which are completely absurd. And then the crash took place. The investors lost half their money. And over the next 10 years, they doubled their money again. That means that in 10 years, they got their money back, but they made no profits. And during this period, the underlying quality growth businesses continued to grow year in, year out, irrespective of what was going on in the wider economy. And so over the very long term, as at today, there's been this correlation between the earnings growth and the share price. And that's why they're called long duration businesses. Okay, so another point that people make, and I think it's a very fair one, is that uh, the difference today between some of the... Uh, very large and very popular uh, companies that are doing making a lot of money at the moment. We're talking about the uh, the Apples, the Microsofts, uh, and so on of this world, so-called Fangs. The difference between them and early, some earlier periods like the Nifty Fifty or indeed um, uh, the TMT bubble in 2000 is that, uh, whereas certainly in 2000, a lot of these technology companies they they were valued very highly, but they didn't have any earnings at all. Uh, they didn't actually make any money. Uh, and that's not a very good. They, it was all about the future. They might be able, what they might be able to do in the future. Uh, and the problem today is quite different because we the fangs is that everybody's complaining about the fact they're making too much money. They're generating a huge amounts of cash. They're not paying enough tax, according to some people. Uh, so it's a completely different uh, situation. It's one thing to pay uh, a multiple of thirty-five times or thirty times for a company that 
is making a lot of money and another to pay 30 times for a company that is not making any money at all. Well, when you're paying, when a company is making no money at all, then your pay, then a P ratio actually doesn't apply because there's no E. Right. Um, and that is very convenient to these momentum investors. And the period that you just touched upon was very convenient because since there's no earnings, you don't have to worry about the PE ratio. On the contrary, as soon as they make their first million in profits, the PE ratio goes up to or is 10,000 times or whatever it is. So it's actually very inconvenient when they start making money. And these investors that bought these types of shares at that time, they did it with a purpose of exiting again. In other words, they had an exit strategy from day one. And, and that exit strategy might have kicked in very soon after they bought the shares, depending on how quickly they made how much money. But that to me is a game. It is not a philosophy or an investment program. It's a game. Exactly. And it's, um, going back to Ben Graham, it's the difference between speculating and investing, basically. If you're just worried, the only thing interests you is the, is the price of the share, regardless of the business, you're basically speculating. If you're actually interested in the uh, financial characteristics of the thing you're buying, that it makes you more of an investor. You're actually looking for tangible returns, if you like, from uh, from whatever you're buying. So it's not a game. You're right. It's uh, and, and the problem is, I guess, that uh, a large part of um, the investing world is actually engaged in playing games rather than actually investing for the long term. I thought I might mention in this context also something that, um, uh, as you may know, uh, he said immodestly, I wrote a book with a fellow called Sandy Nairn about uh, his mentor, Sir John Templeton, who was, a, was, a, was, was always known as a value investor. Uh, and his great mantra was, well, I've never done badly by buying cheap stocks, is what he sort of tends to say. But of course, what he meant by that wasn't, he wasn't actually a classic value investor at all. Um, what he was, was um, he said he didn't really matter how uh, a company got to a certain destination, whether it was because it was uh, low PE or whether it was a high growth. He liked, he liked them both. What he actually liked was a combination. In other words, he, what he used, his great metric was, well, if we try and look forward five years, not always easy to do, but if we look forward five years, will the company be cheap in five years' time? In other words, will it have a low PE multiple in five years' time? And I don't mind whether you get there by... Uh, where you the starting price or whether it's the company that grows to a point where it's actually making more money and therefore the PE is low. And a classic example, I think, of that would be, which I think we mentioned before, is when, when Google was floated on the, on the stock market, people still had memories of the TMT bubble and they said, this is ridiculous. How can a company be worth, you know, 35 times earnings or whatever the, the multiple was when it came to the market? And yet, if you actually projected forward to how much money it was making five years later, it was actually on a PE of two. Uh, in other words, it was actually being sold at two times the amount of profit that it would be making in five years' time. And therefore, it would have been something that John Templeton, if he could have forecast that would be how much money they'd be making, would be very happy to buy. So he wasn't against high PE ratios per se. He was, he was in favor of uh, stocks that, had, uh, that were going to be cheap in five years' time, if I can put it that way. So, uh, And that was, I think, the difference between I remember at the time, a lot of people were very negative about Google when it came to the market. They said, this is just a nonsense. How can anybody pay this amount of money for it? And yet, look at what's happened to it since. Because the growth element is exactly was really what counted in his mind. And I think that's absolutely right. Um, 
but also the balance sheet. Um, I don't know what Google's balance sheet was at the time of its flotation, how sound it was, but I think that's important. I think that what Templeton says is quite true, but of course he was a great investor. Um, so there are a lot of moving parts in an investment decision. But to come back to what we said a moment ago, it, it's not a game. It's like the word bet, for example. Uh, it's not a bet either. It's a very serious decision to be making, and you've got to know why you're making it. And you mustn't make an investment decision with the obsession of making as much money as quickly as possible, because that is a, if you like, an approach which is probably destined to fail. That certainly seems to be the experience. If uh, if you kind of live by the sword, as it were, you die by the sword, and uh, there are lots of examples of that. Because if you have no sense of the fundamental value of an investment, it's very difficult. Then you're just looking at the price. It's very difficult to know when when to stop owning it and when to start owning it. Uh, there's no kind of rationale for that. And we've seen in terms of some of these styles that I mentioned earlier, that's certainly been what's happened. Uh, so, for example, in recent years, uh, one of the new factors. Um, I should say that there's some research by some academics I've also looked at, which says that there are now that uh, researchers have identified 316 different factors that might be a factory in, in success, and every one of those has got their adherence, and every one of those is being uh, has resulted in somebody creating an ETF to try and an exchange-ready fund to try and take advantage of that. But uh, the, the example I was going to give was of something called low volatility. In other words, so people suddenly wake up to the fact that according to their back testing, that uh, stocks or indeed other instances which demonstrate low volatility, in other words, the share price does not move around very much, uh, appeared to produce uh, you know, above average returns consistently over, over time. That was what the kind of research indicated. Um, uh, and indeed, for a while, that's, uh, that proved to be the case. But I mean, low volatility in particular is a very dangerous game. You're buying stocks that actually, or instruments that don't appear to move very much. And what tends to happen is then you suddenly get hit over the head with a, with a sandbag uh, when something goes wrong in that market. And we've seen that happen very recently in, uh, with, with low volatility uh, uh, indices. They got absolutely clobbered in 2018 and again more recently. So what do you think about that? Do you think that is a, that is, that is, that is a game par excellence, is it not? It's not only a game par excellence, it's also misjudging where the risk lies. The reason why people are attracted to low volatility is because they equate volatility with risk. I'm sure that a few weeks ago we've talked about this already. Whereas for me, volatility has nothing to do with risk. It is simply the mood swing of the market on any given day. It's not the fault of the company if its share price is volatile. Okay, there are other factors like liquidity, um, which is a sort of correlated to volatility, of course. But I think that that's putting too much emphasis on something which, is, which doesn't have enough importance. And as you say, when something happens unexpectedly, you get hit over the head with a sandbag and you find that uh, actually that you were hiding behind a piece of established wisdom, which turns out to be a false sense of security rather than a real sense of security. And it always leads us back to the same question. You, if you're going to buy a business, um, you've got to know what you're buying. And funnily enough, this volatility 
equals risk mentality is one of the reasons why institutions such as pension funds and life insurance companies have gone into the private equity sphere so massively in the last five to 10 or 15 years, because there they think that the underlying investment will grow and that one day they will be able to cash it in at a huge profit. And meanwhile, they're not going to suffer from the volatility of the share price. But what they're not looking at is the degree of indebtedness that these private equity portfolios have in them. And therefore, the quality of such an investment, in my mind, is certainly not higher only because it's not quoted and therefore there is no risk of a volatile share price. In other words, I'd much rather have a slightly volatile share price of a first-rate quality growing business than to have no volatility at all in a company which is of a much higher risk because of all the other reasons. So volatility is another one of those traps. Absolutely. Uh, I could not agree more with that. Uh, one other thing I thought I would mention is, again, uh, again, some very effective research, I think, done by the three professors at London Business School, Dimson, Marsh, and Staunton, who, very, uh, who look at long-run historical performance. The one thing they found when they looked again more recently was that all these so-called factors that other investors are interested in, but we are not, uh, <laughs> they all tend to uh, do better when interest rates are falling and less well when interest rates are rising. And now we do know that uh, any investor, including yourself, uh, what the prevailing rate of interest rates is relevant to the valuation of a business uh, in a number of different ways. Well, perhaps you could uh, tell us what you think about that. What is the impact of interest rates on, on balance sheets and on performance of the company? The impact of interest rates on balance on the share prices is going to be much higher if the company in question is indebted, obviously, because then servicing the debt is going to be more expensive as interest rates go up. And that has uh, an, an immediate effect on the, the share prices. You could see that, for example, in, in the last quarter of 2018, when there was a, a mini collapse in the market. And companies like Netflix, which had which I mentioned earlier, which has an indebted balance sheet, those share prices get massacred much more quickly. And so, but to come back to the value versus growth discussion, funnily enough, if interest rates go up because there is an inflationary whiff in the air, that usually gives companies an excuse to raise their prices and they usually get away with it. And that in turn makes their share prices after the initial sort of shock go up again. And that is usually an environment where value investors tend to outperform because of this potential pricing power that seems to have crept back because of the return of inflation. Now, I don't see that happening for the time being. We can discuss that another time. But I think that that is, that if, if we had a return of inflation over the next five to 10 years, you would have a completely different background in the stock markets compared with today. I think that that is a discussion that I'd very much like to have with you in the next week sometime, 
because it is very relevant to what's going on today, given all these trillions and trillions that central banks and fiscal authorities have poured into the economy and into the market, which some old-fashioned monetarists call too much money chasing too few goods, and is therefore inevitably going to lead to inflation. The jury is still out on that, and I certainly have a different opinion there, but it's a, it's a theme which will be very much recurring in the next months and years. I certainly agree with that. I think that is the, perhaps a more interesting and more valuable topic to discuss in a way than value against growth, which is, uh, as we said, to some extent irrelevant for those who are pursuing a particular philosophy of investing, though not irrelevant to those who are obsessed by these style factors. And I think I'll just make one final comment out which occurs to me is that, again, we've talked about this example, I think one that I was very aware of, is that <clears throat> the important thing, if you've got a good company which is which is a long duration uh, or appears to be a long duration asset, companies do get uh, hit by changes in the competitive environment. They get hit by changes in technology. Uh, and I, the example I always use is that of Eastman Kodak, which until... Uh, you know, for many, many years, it was a staple of uh, the, US, the, the large-cap U.S. market in everybody's pension fund and so on, appeared to be the dominant player in its industry. And then suddenly it was gone. It failed to take a catch-up with the changes in, in uh, technology in its own business, and uh, it disappeared, or effectively disappeared. Uh, so, And, of course, that's got nothing to do with the prevailing rate of interest rates. It's got nothing to do with whether value or growth is doing well. It just underlines the point which I'm sure you'd agree with, that actually you've got to really understand the companies you're investing in uh, and be very much aware of the, of the real-world factors that are going to uh, influence their success or failure in the future. Yes, the last thing I'd say to you is to remind you that when you and I started our careers, and this is quite shocking to young people today, they can't imagine it, but when you and I started our careers, there was no internet, there were no mobile phones. There were no faxes. And if I wanted to send a document to you, I would have to somehow, I could, you couldn't print it out either. You had to type it out. Then you had to make a copy on one of these ink copiers. Then I'd have to put it in an envelope, take it to the post office, and then a week later, you would get it. And then you would, if you were lucky, <laughs> if you were lucky, if you were lucky. And so in a way, Eastman Kodak is a reflection of what the, if you like, the markets that it was operating in were like at the time. And, um, and of course, today's world is completely different. So you do get these innovative disruptors or creative destroyers or whatever you call them. And so I think for us, the challenge is, to discuss what is the world going to look, out, look like in 40 or 50 years compared with today. Yeah, well, on that very uh, easy note of how I'm sure I can come up with the answers to all those things in the next, uh, in next week, um, let's call it a day for today, Peter. Thank you very much. It's been very interesting as always. Uh, value and growth, I think we can put them to one side. And let's come back to talking about more, perhaps more fundamentally interesting things such as the outlook for inflation and indeed the way the world's going to change uh, in the coming years. Thanks very much, Peter. Thank you very much. So we've got one week 
to discuss, to think about what the world would look at, look like in 50 years. Thank you very much, Jonathan. <laughs> You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced and available for distribution every Saturday. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.